when Keller was awarded that, they announced that he was going to be awarded the, the Kuiper Award for public engagement for Christianity in 2017. I mean, Princeton threw a fit. It didn't go and, too good, did it? No, I mean, they're like, this guy is a bigot. He hates women, right? Because he's a complementarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's, you know, he's anti-abortion. Uh, so he, he's, he's uh, inflicting violence upon, on, on the oppressed or whatever. Yes. And so they, th- they, they, re- he had, they forced, they, re- they forced the Kuiper Center to restrict that and, and rescind that. And I'm like, look, if, if, if Keller can't do it anymore, if mm-hmm. it doesn't work for Keller, I don't want to say I'm, this is not pragmatism. It's, it's helpful contextualization which I learned about from more than anybody from Keller. So I just want to know what context we're in and where a certain approach might be less fitting. Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, pastor. And our topic today is second thoughts about the winsome approach to cultural engagement, or if you want to make it sound really clever, second thoughts about third wayism. All right, so there we go, second and third. And uh, I have a guest today. His name is James Wood. Let me give you a little bit of bio on James before we actually introduce him and you get to see him. So he is assistant professor of theology and ministry at Redeemer University. That's in Ancaster, Ontario. Yes, Canada. And uh, he just recently successfully defended his dissertation, uh, his PhD dissertation. So he is soon to be PhD in hand. I think that'll be, they make you wait and sweat a while, don't they? To be what, May or something? Uh, from the University of Toronto, that PhD. So, hello, James. How are you? I'm good. Uh, glad to be with you. Thank you for being here, man. So, a little bit more bio. Like, uh, are you married? Do you have family? Do you have some kids? What's going on there? I am married. I've been married for, I guess we're coming up on, I think, 15 years this year. Sounds like uh, real numbers. Yeah. We've got four little kids, four girls, uh, ages four uh, girls. seven. Seven, uh, seven, six, uh, four, and two. So we don't sleep much, uh, but we wow. have a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Just, just incidentally, just so you'll know. So my wife and I have been married forty-seven years, brother. All That's right, be real congrats. Numbers. And we're up to uh, well, grandchild number thirteen has just been announced on the way in the womb, growing. All right. So uh, pretty cool. They're worth the waiting grand- for. Let me just tell you, grandkids. I hear it. Yeah, I hear it's pretty great. So yeah, yeah, we've been, uh, yeah, so we now live in Canada. You know, I did my doctoral work here um, and then, uh, and now working here as a professor, uh, but spent most of my adult life, uh, pretty much all my adult life in Austin, Texas, where I was a PTA pastor. Texas to Canada. Yeah. 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 That's a switch. Yeah, so my, yeah, I'm kind of a second career uh, switch. I was a pastor first and uh, evangelist, campus evangelist uh, in the ministry of crew. You were in uh, crew. To, mm-hmm. Yeah, then then uh, PCA pastor, and then um, I thought I was going to do pastoral ministry for a long time, but I was he- heavily encouraged to look into doctoral studies, and and that's where I uh, the Lord brought me. Pretty awesome, man. PCA pastor, way to go. Almost there, Reformed Baptist. Anyway, we're close. So um, today we're talking about third way winsomeness and uh, an alternative to it, really. So I want to get you talking fast here. So I'm just going to ask you, get us started, please. A lot of people listening don't know the answer to this question. So what is third way winsomeness? And that kind of implies, oh, then there must be a third way and there must be a second way. What are they? So fill us in, would you? 
Yeah. And so I'll say from the outset that, uh, you know, the two terms that I've, uh, you know, kind of ended up doing a lot of critique of are winsomeness and third wayism. And I'll say from the outset, I'm not absolutely opposed to either of them in their best iterations. I think Mm -hmm. there's something right captured in both of them, but I think they kind of go off the rails a little bit uh, by the the, uh, most prominent advocates. And so I, you know, as I've watched them apply that model, uh, it increasingly... um, made me critical of it. And, yes. and so I had some, had some questions. Okay. So, so what are they? Well, uh, I use this as kind of a package, this catch all labels up to describe the package approach to cultural engagement that I say, uh, in summary form, uh, seeks to, um, minimize offense above all to minimize offense, to maximize openness to the gospel message. Okay. So that, that would definitely be winsomeness. Uh, and I'll, 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 I mean, we can discuss some of the biblical imperatives that are, are very much in, that inspire and are behind winsomeness. In those biblical imperatives, we sh- can never abandon. But FYI, if people don't know this, the word winsomeness isn't in the Bible. That's okay. The mm-hmm. idea could be. You can make that mm-hmm. argument. Just like the word Trinity is not in the Bible, yet the idea is. But at least it should kind of humble you and and and, and relativize its, its, its level of importance of like, look, if it's not in the Bible, then if somebody critiquing it, it should not be totally out of bounds. Okay, so that's one thing. That's winsomeness. Right. But we can talk about the imperatives that you can't ever abandon. But okay. But third wayism definitely isn't in the Bible. Uh, but there's something true about third wayism. I think in its best iterations, third wayism is is kind of built on the idea of like Christianity is neither left nor right, right? Like it's neither conservative nor Republican. It's it's you know you don't worship the donkey or the elephant. Okay, mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and I absolutely agree with that. Uh, if if anybody, I'm more conservative. That's uh, I don't hide that. Uh, but if anybody thinks that I'm just a all in on the Republican Party and want to get a speaking, you know, uh, engagement at CPAC or something, they're entirely wrong. I, I have a lot of criticisms of the contemporary GOP, uh, and so, um, but. Uh, so there's something right about that. It, you know, it, it's trying to avoid uncritical partisanship and kind of toxic tribalism where you kind of subordinate the faith to partisanship. And I think that that's right. That's good. Yet my problem is um, it often leads to a sort of like uh, kind of arbitrary expectation of constantly balancing between the positions. And, and, and what I say kind of leads to false, a lot of times false moral equivalencies. Like you're like, look, I mean, we can't, if we're going to speak about abortion, uh, why don't we also speak about like something like idolatry? I mean, so Tim Keller is the most prominent advocate, you know, of this model, and and I think he's the best. So like I've very, been very very clear. Like um, I think he's much more thoughtful than a lot of his acolytes are. And I know uh, that you have you have quite a bit of background with him. You've been a strong admirer. Yeah. You were probably situated in that category of believer for quite a while. So just so our listeners know that, oh you've yeah, been there. You've yeah, I, I could give a little bit of background on that and come back to my concern see ways where I feel like he does um with a little bit on certain statements but also um more how uh, the disciples do I think but yeah so Keller is a huge influence on me the reason I was asked to write this article I never intended to I was just working at first things and I was having lunch with Rusty Reno as the head editor there head editor there and I was like explaining like hey you know a lot of guys like me you know we're in New York so you know Keller's kind of in the background here a lot of guys like me really looked up to him for a long time and kind of followed his model for cultural engagement. Really, and and but have had some questions over oh, you know, over the years, like whether or not it's the most fitting for our context, whether there's some limitations to that. And I was like, yeah, and I've had some questions. I've kind of shifted. I haven't really looked to him as much, though I really really respect him. And I was like, you know, but I mean, I respect it. I've respected him so much. I named my dog after him. I told him, <laughs> and I was like, my dog's named Keller. Uh, and Rusty, huh. when I told him that, Rusty was like, you have to write this article. And I was like, oh, uh-huh. my gosh. Okay, so he's like, that's the perfect way to start an article. And, like, mm. and so it was never like an intent. It just kind of fell into my lap. But, yeah, my dog, my 13-year-old dog uh, who just passed this summer. After, oh, I'm he sorry. Passed, he, he passed right after the article came out, which was kind of mm. strange. 
uh, we had, yeah, he had a great life with us, but his name was Keller. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, my wife and I fell in love reading reason for God when it came out in 2008, which I still think is maybe Keller's, I don't know. I, I go best. back and forth. Reason for God, prodigal God are really, I think his two best books. Um, in my, my, my uh, opinion, prodigal God is where he really articulates his kind of understand. He ex- kind of provides his kind of creative exposition of the gospel is kind of avoiding the two ditches, right? Which then gets to the, not the left and the right thing, which we could talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I actually gave the book prodigal God to all my groomsmen in my wedding. I mean, so he's had a profound impact on me and I really still really admire him. Um, and so I very much, even as we go on this conversation, you, you very much here. I, I'm not trying to dump on Keller. So, right. um, yeah. Thank you. I'll pause on that. Yeah. All right. So, so what's the first way? What's the second way? What's oh, the yeah. third way? What's winsomeness or what's the, what's wrong? Like what could be wrong with winsomeness? Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. The ahead. three ways. I mean, and I, in this recent article in American reformer where I do provide some more constructive vision proposals for kind of what I think this model might be missing or, or what might be, um, uh, downplayed in it. Um, I do talk about what I call prodigal politics as a, as a new term I've uh, mm-hmm. introduced. And that's because I, uh, the people who follow Keller's model, um, here, here's a couple things that start to happen, I think, is um, they'll do this, uh, they'll look at the prodigal God uh, exposition, which is really interesting. You know, you've got the two ditches represented by the two sons, the one son, the kind of uh, it, it, uh uh, relativistic immorality over here by the younger brother, the kind of uh, moralism, religiosity, moralistic religiosity by the older brother. And if you read the, that parable in Luke 15, it, it looks like, okay, look, the harshest words are directed towards the elder brother, the, the one who's kind of the rule follower, religious type. What happens then a lot in our like cultural engagement in politics, then that gets applied is like, well, the people we need to be uh, most critical of are the people on the right, because they're the ones, the political court, uh, uh, a counterpart to uh, the elder brother. And they're the ones who are moralistic. They're trying to impose kind of a, a moral vision on, and, you know, uh, on the populace in kind of a, in a, a sort of like oppressive authoritarian way. And so, okay. So, um, so I have questions about that for our contemporary moment. Maybe now will hold, hold off on that, but you know, you asked how does, so when, where, how does this approach go wrong? Well, Two things, just maybe here from the outset, and I, we can keep expanding. Uh, I think that this approach goes wrong, first of all, by creating a lot of false moral equivalencies, which I said. I, you know, when, Kel, when this is unfortunate for my piece came out, basically, they were holding on to it, I think, for the opportune moment at first things. Mm. And the opportune moment was when Dobbs, uh, basically, mm. the Dobbs decision was released, uh, and had, Keller had just a few days before Dobbs, and I think this is unfortunate timing for him, he had released a tweet thread. And he's like, why do we care so much about basically making abortion illegal? We don't make other things illegal. Like we don't make idolatry illegal. Hmm. And, and, and that's right. I think you get into all these kind of weird um, conundrums of, of moral reasoning there. Like, why are we, of course, like, of course we don't make people's like internal thoughts of idolatry illegal. But if your idolatry gets expressed in like sacrificing your children to Moloch, we do. <laughs> like, uh, and that's yes. what I would understand abortion to be, right? I mean, yes. uh, uh, you do legislate against uh, public vices that are socially destructive and harmful to others. I mean, you don't legislate against all private vices that, you know, don't seem to flow out. Everybody would be dead. 
Yeah, I mean, right? So that you know, people say like the whole the whole common trope, like you can't legislate morality. And my response to that is always, I don't know what else you legislate. There's nothing else. Yeah, yeah and so uh, uh, that's what you legislate. Maybe like you could make some caveat for like tax codes or something, but even that's informed by some moral vision of. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so anyway, um, so it gets in, and, and so it's just I think unfortunate for Keller. I, I think that logic is not airtight, and I think that shows kind of the, the kind of the, the, these false moral equivalencies. And it also leads to, like, I think, an unwillingness to acknowledge and, and publicly uh, acknowledge and recognize the fact that there can be asymmetry among the various sides in our political uh, contemporary politics and even an, a, an asymmetry among the issues themselves. Right. So, like, mm-hmm. like there are certain moral issues that are, first of all, more clear from Scripture, like your position on abortion uh, you will get a clearer position on abortion from scripture than you will on like uh, a total economic position on e- e- economic policy. Hmm. I mean, there are certain things that you'll pull out about economics from scripture, but it's really complicated how it applies to modern societies. So I'm sorry, that, that just is going to be good. I can say we shouldn't kill babies. I, I don't know exactly how much we should tax people, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. or, uh, you're just. Or how many immigrants we should allow in, yeah. uh, in a given month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should care about the refugee, but okay. So, what does that mean, and and uh, exactly at a policy level? I, you know, it's, it's a, that's up for debate. Mm-hmm. But saying we should not kill babies—that's not. I really don't think that's up for yes. debate. So there, are, so, so there's some, um, some issues that are just simply more clear from scripture, uh, and more important in our politics. And I think, um, and also there are some sides. We should be able to say that some sides are doing more evil, are promoting more evil than the other. And so, uh, I'm not a hardcore Republican, but I do think. The contemporary Democratic Party has shifted to radical positions. They're like, I think, so one of your questions I want to talk about, what did, was winsomeness more appropriate at a former time? You know, I, I think a lot of people who still appropriate this model think that we're living in 1995 or something. Hmm. When like, you could still say, you could still be a pro-life Democrat and you could still believe Democrats uh, wanted abortion to be safe, legal, and rare, hmm. and that they would oppose same-sex marriage hmm. and things like that. I mean, Joe Biden did. You know, yes. but now, you know, now the Democratic Party is, you know, they're pretty committed to a radical abortion agenda. Even Joe Biden's tweets this last week, you yes. know, uh, he made it very clear, like the Republicans want to end abortion and Democrats want to codify Roe v. Wade in, in the nation. And uh, and also, you know, uh, all of the uh, the g- radical gender ideology that is being pushed on kids in schools. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I think we're just not living in 1995 anymore. Uh, we're in a to- we are in a different era. And so to act like the, the Democratic Party is kind of what it was under Clinton, Clinton I think, is, is, is naive. So um, – uh, oh, but also where does all this approach go wrong? So I think it leads to sort of naivety and kind of false moral equivalencies and all that. But also I think it just translates – winsomeness often translates into niceness, which I think is a sentimentalized reduction of the biblical moral vision. Uh, I don't think it has to, but I think that is a common tendency. You've heard, so, you, you know, Vody Bauckham, and you've heard him talk about the the new eleventh commandment is just be nice. Yeah, I mean, I think you could, if you just like pulled people on the street of like what they thought Christianity's basic moral principle would be, I think they would just be like, yeah, it's it's you got to be, be nice. nice. Mm-hmm. And I just think like, uh, I'm I'm not advocating for being a jerk for Jesus. I'm just saying if you do truthful love in our increasingly post-Christian society. No matter how nice you package it, that truthful love is going to be received as unloving and unwinsome. Yes. Uh, no matter how, and that's just why, like, okay, our, I, I signal in my first things piece that I, I do think that 2017 situation with Keller was really fascinating. It was telling. Like, you're not going to, 
you're not going to be more winsome than Tim Keller. I'm sorry. Like he's the best. Mm. Like he, uh, he's very intelligent. He's very well read and he's very nice. And at Princeton, when I was it, it, interesting, I ended up doing a THM at Princeton in 2018 mm. uh, at Princeton seminary at Princeton. He, the, uh, they're kind of, they're, there's, um, loosely affiliated with the, the Abraham Kuyper center and the Abraham Kuyper, they, they do deliver their, uh, uh, annual, they have their annual conference there where they they hand their uh, Kuiper Award for public engagement out at Princeton, even though it's not it's officially like a Princeton organization. Uh, but when Keller was awarded that, they announced that he was going to be awarded the the Kuiper Award for public en- engagement for Christianity in 2017. I mean, Princeton threw a fit. It didn't go and, too good, did it? No, I mean they're like this guy is a bigot. He hates women, right? Because he's a complementarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know he's you know he's anti-abortion. Uh, so he, he's 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 uh, inflicting violence upon on on the oppressed or whatever, yes. and so they th- they they re- he had they forced they re- they forced the Kuiper Center to restrict that and, and rescind that. And I'm like, look, if 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 Keller can't do it anymore, if it doesn't work for Keller, and so this you know, I'm, I don't want to say I'm this is not pragmatism. It's it's helpful contextualization, which I learned about from more than anybody from Keller. So I just want to know what context we're in. And where a certain approach might be less fitting. And so I do think this approach is a little bit less fitting because uh, I don't think it works like it used to. And I also think it has dangers. Uh, to, uh, and, and I think it forces us to mute some of the harsher edges of the scriptural vision. That's a good example of a danger. So would it be appropriate to say, would you agree with this, that uh, th- there was a time when maybe the winsome approach you could nice your way, you could winsome your way through differences with non-Christians and so on, and maybe they'd respect you and they'd like you, but those days are pretty much past, and now you can't winsome, you can't nice your way through what's going on in the nation now. Is that Does that sound right? Yeah, and obviously this is going to be uh, the kind of post-Christian or in, in the, or the entrance into negative world is unevenly distributed, right? Like, so, okay, so like if you're in, you're in small town Texas, uh, you know, being a good conservative Christian still might go a long way and, mm-hmm. and you can whatever and you can you know kind of have dialogue uh, with people who uh, are come from different persuasions and okay so that that may, so this is we have to acknowledge different contexts but I, I would say like um, uh, so like David French is you know David French doesn't like anything I say and um, yeah and I want to come good. to him in a minute so go ahead oh, so he, you know his first hit back on me uh, uh, was like, well, I was in Harvard in the late nineties or something. Yeah, and I read that. And it's yeah. like, well, yeah, dude, but like the rest of society wasn't like Harvard in the nineties. <laughs> uh, and the rest of society is much more like Harvard in the nineties. Now, mm-hmm. you know, we always thought like the whole, the whole joke of like these, you know, these radical left kids like in college, like, uh, they're just going to leave that when they go into the real world. Right. Quote unquote. Instead, they've remade the real world according to their, you know, what was it? Jonathan Hyde or whatever, like, or maybe it was uh, Eric Kaufman or somebody, one of these uh, kind of ID, one of these figures who's like, look, uh, we're all on campus now, right? Or an- that was Andrew Sullivan. Yeah, campus uh, spilled whole, out into the whole country, didn't it? Yeah, it, the whole world is the campus now, mm-hmm. and, and, and the whole the whole the whole culture is, and so um, and so I think uh, that stuff might have worked a little bit better in a former time when. Um, you know, in, there's big debates on, on on Ren's taxonomy, but I do think Ren, his whole three worlds thing has been kind of helpful just for the mm-hmm. average person to kind of put some terms on something that feels like it has shifted beneath their feet in the last decade. Yeah, it really has. I think a lot of people have felt that. And so people can critique all day long and 
Ren's thing and be like, oh, it's imprecise. I'm like, okay, but then you come up with something better because your average guy, just your average person just feels like something is different. Uh, and, and that, the, and in a former age, it did feel like you could be, you know, a traditionalist Christian and you could have the, hold these positions in a former age that you actually was a social benefit to you. Okay. I, I've never grown up in that. My, my whole life has not been in that. So I'm not used to that. At, at a certain point in my life, it felt like, okay, this, you, it was just kind of eccentric and strange. Okay, whatever you do this, I do yoga and I'm a vegan. So whatever. Uh, it does feel like now, like, no, like if you hold to these biblical truths, you're actually a bigot and like you're undercut, you're, you're doing harm for, to the social order. And that does feel different. So anyway, I'll stop there. Yes. I'm old enough to have lived in all three of those. So for, for our hearers who might not have uh, been familiar with Nathan Wren's taxonomy, the, um, what was it? It was positive world, neutral world, and now negative world, positive world. And I was there. Uh, I became a believer in 71 when I was 17 years old. And it was very definitely a positive thing to be be a Christian. If you wanted to run for high office, it, it would help you if you could say, I'm a Christian, you're seen carrying a Bible and whatnot. Uh, then there was neutral world where, yeah, it's, it's might be okay with some people, not okay with other people. But we're in negative world now where if you say, I'm an evangelical, that's negative. You're probably not going to become a professor at Harvard. You're probably not going to be, um, you know, the leader of some Silicon Valley uh, organization. You're probably not going to be voted into high, high office. So um, that's that's the negative world that we're in. And the idea here is that in negative world, you just can't be nice enough for them to like you. In fact, but, so on to David French. He seems to say, these are my <laughs> words, like, it, it, let's be nice to them and give them space in the culture, and then they'll be nice to us and give us space in the culture. So if they want to have men in funny little suits dancing for kids in the library, let them do that. There's not that many of them doing it anyway. And then they'll be nice and let us do things. Is that working? What's your opinion on that? <laughs> uh, well, no, it didn't work for Keller, as I mentioned. I'll, you know, so that's one case. But the other case is right is like we moved quickly from um, let just let us get married right you know yeah. let, uh, uh, leave us alone how is this going to affect your marriage to bake the cake bigot yes. um, to now you uh, must affirm you know, us yeah there Carl Truman is extremely helpful here right mm -hmm. so go read Carl Truman's last couple books of like look and he's building on Philip Reeve Charles Taylor Alistair McIntyre all these major thinkers of like look we are on the age of authenticity where like your internal morals your internal self needs to be publicly affirmed. That, that's what people feel. And so like, like for me to say like, okay, you, you can live your life, but like, I disagree with you. And like, but no, like I have to affirm it. Like, and, 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 and so or, that's why it's all the push for pride stuff, right? Like you've got to put your flag up. You got to show your pride support. Uh, and, and so you're not just going to be left alone. And Aaron McIntyre is an interesting online figure. He'll be like, the side who wants to, wants to win will always beat the side who wants to be left alone. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, uh, and so you have to, have to, you have to, and, and Matthew Peterson's really great on this. Like you have to combat a positive with a positive. You can't combat a positive with a negative. Um, and so the, the live and let live, leave alone just isn't going to work. And so the, you know, the let us get married to bake the cake bigot is one example. And David French is just really insensitive to the whole Jack Phillips situation. I mean, like Jack Phillips is still facing legal stuff today. I mean, like, and, and the whole like process is the punishment. Even if he got exonerated at a certain point, like he won the case after 10 years, his whole life has been turned upside down. The process mm -hmm. is the punishment and it's a message to mm -hmm. everybody else, right? Like step out of line. If you don't bend the knee, you will be beaten down. We'll, we'll right? hurt I mean, you. That's right. And so, and so not only this, but you also saw what it was the Vanderbilt last week, right? Where it's like, 
you know, uh, hmm. to the whole like, uh, you know, we've moved from call me Caitlyn Jenner to castrate the ki- those kids or you'll lose your job as a surgeon. Man. Right. Like in a very I mean, short amount of time, too. Yeah. And so that whole idea of like, OK, just give give them some rights or whatever hmm. and, and, and share the we'll space. Li- we'll live yeah. and let live. It, that, that's not going to happen. Yeah. And so and that's and what I'll, one last thing about this is like one of the one of the great blessings of the great awakening, for instance, and I've written about awokeness and other many others have, obviously, is it it, it put to bed the lie of, of a neutral public order like it showed that like, look neutrality was never possible really it it was only imaginable with the residue of christendom uh when the more people generally still kind of held like you know some basic moral principles from christianity um but a neutral public order is never really possible and the greater and we always people hunger for a a moral vision uh to inspire uh, the public order and the great awakening revealed that like they're hungering for something to say this is good and this is right. Mm. And so that, that actually provides opportunity for us as Christians. But yes, and so now how do we enter into that space and, and try to articulate a very a thickly Christian version? Yeah, very good. Hey, you you write and speak about um, third-wayism tends to view well, – it doesn't tend to. It views politics yeah. through the lens of evangelism. Would you talk about that? What do you mean by that? What is that? Yeah, and so you know, you asked earlier, was there a time where this was more appropriate? Uh, and I do think that there was a time where this made uh, this whole approach made a little bit more sense, and you can argue that that's that, that's very contestable and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I think the one thing that I've increasingly come to realize that is something that is uh, a critique that I have that is a, a contextual that it's not dependent on context is that I, I think this whole approach, winsome third wayism, the way it approaches politics is basically always misguided uh, because. Uh, the idea that like, and you see this, what I, what I mean by that politics through the lens of evangelism is you see this from the types like Russell Moore types and, and, and others of like how you vote. Like when, when Donald Trump was elected and that 81% number, right. And how that got weaponized forever. It's like, look, 81% of white, white evangelicals voted for Trump. So that means we've totally discredited our public witness. Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. that's, and that was the encouragement from the Russell Moore types throughout that whole process. And again, I didn't vote for Trump, so this isn't a self-justification of me. I think that that is bad logic. It's bad moral reasoning. It's bad political reasoning. It's like, we just shouldn't be thinking so much about our voting as, as an evangelistic <laughs> affair, uh, that uh, how I vote is going to undermine our ability to share the gospel with others. Because we need to be thinking about politics. Politics is about how we order our common life together, and it's focused on the things like justice. Uh, and so I want to say, like, look, I'm a conservative Christian, and I think the conservative, a lot of the conservative positions are very much a better reflection of justice. And so I want to fight for a just social order. And like, it's okay if my neighbors disagree with me, um, but I I can't hamstring that pursuit of justice because I'm worried that they then might not be open to the gospel. Yes. Uh, I think, I think that's just a category error. Cause also, first of all, you don't even know, by the way, like you don't know, like, uh, we don't know what 10 years from now people are going to look back and be like, hey, who fought against abortion, like the whole abortion industrial complex? Who was there saying no to that madness? Who was there fighting the trans craziness on kids? Like, for instance, I wonder, one of the things I've brought up recently is like, where are the detransitioners going to turn later? And who are they going to call out for being silent, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yes. there might be evangelists, even, even if you wanted to think evangelistically, I, I think this is a bit naive. Um, in the way that it holds back real conservative efforts that are good. 
So, uh, yeah. So think about justice, not through that. Think about it, uh, not about, not through evangelism. Think about it as the pursuit of justice. Yes. You just reminded me, uh, you mentioned Carl Truman and his writings, one of which is, uh, the rise and triumph of the modern self. And in that book, he, uh, he suggests that there might be children suing their parents in the future. Oh, I totally like, agree. Why did you do that? Why did you allow me to do that? Why did you let the doctors do that? Um, so, yeah, you never know. You never um, know. You're, you're trying to play along, and this is going to be good for the gospel, and it turns out later they're like, you're the one that should have been telling me this is wrong. Why didn't you? Or it might yep. be you're the one who told me this is wrong, and that's what ultimately led me to Christ. So That's right. Yeah. yeah, there's a great, in my recent essay, you know, Sheep, Fools, and Fools, which is provides some positive views of ministry, I refer to a great Gospel Coalition article a few months ago about a, a person doing exactly this, talking exactly this, about who uh, was a detransitioner and basically told uh, his, his friend who was a pastor, like, please just keep telling people the truth, even if they won't hear it right away. Like, and this person turned back towards the church because that pastor was doing that. Yes. Uh, yeah, amen to that. Hey, talk about this phrase. Did you coin this phrase? Who did coin this phrase? That uh, if, if you're a, a third-way, nuanced person, you tend to punch right and coddle left. Uh, what's that about? Yeah, I did not coin that phrase. I have no idea who did. Uh, all right, it's a good uh, one. But uh, it's so obvious. I mean, and, and, I, and I really don't know that many people who would Disagree, uh, try to actually um, argue against that, but that is what a lot of these figures do. And I, I don't like to do the bulverisms of like trying to get into people's motivations, trying to mm. and intentions too much. I think I try to avoid that. Uh, but I uh, I do think that that is uh, misguided. Uh, but so what, what does punch right call left mean? It means like okay, so a lot of these pastors and Christian minister, Christian public figures, and through social media, uh, in their newsletters, all of that. It seems like they're willing to be very nuanced to the left, to developments mm-hmm. on the left, and give them the benefit of the doubt and the most charitable reading. And any mo- any developments to their right, uh, they quickly denounce, uh, and they're they're quick to discredit, and they're quick to distance themselves from. And and it it seems very disproportionate and asymmetrical. And um, I think it's wrong. I th- if I had to be, if I was being cynical about their motives, it does seem like. Um, they're trying to cozy up to secular elites. That would be one. That mm-hmm. could be one suggestion. Uh, also, that get maybe, their articles published in the secular elite publications and stuff. That's right. Yeah, it, yeah. If you uh, if you want to get in the Atlantic or the Wapo or the New York Times, mm-hmm. one of the as a uh, evangelical, one of the easiest paths to do that, right? Is punch to, right to punch right. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, I'm a Christian, so, but I'm not that kind of Christian. Yeah, and so I, I really hate that idea generally in a sense of like I have a great aversion to that posture that you just mentioned um, because I care so much about church unity. I really do. Mm. I, I care about unity among the brothers, even those who um, I, um, I might really uh, disagree with and find less reputable in society. Like I don't want to quickly be like, oh, I'm not the – it's like the whole trying to avoid the charge of being a fundamentalist. Like we're not those fundamentalists. And it's like, okay, like – but some of the fundamentalists might be – um, really good people just trying to figure it out. Right. And like, yes. and so I, why, why am I so quick to dump on them? Right. And like, like Paul, like, like Paul mm-hmm. said, like, you know, uh, when he was, this, uh, Christians came to him, like these people are preaching from all these bad motives or whatever. He's like, however Christ has preached, he's preached. Right. He mm-hmm. wasn't quick to dissociate from them. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I, I experienced mm-hmm. this as a campus evangelist when like street preachers would come and, uh, they would do stuff that I would never do. And they would, you know, preach hellfire and brimstone. And I disagree with a lot that approach in many ways. 
But I was uh, when my students would come to me and like, what, what do you think about that? I had to fight internally to be like, oh, but we're not like them, you know, mm. because I think that's really arrogant. Anyway, so so there's so if I was being cynical, that would be that could be something you'd read between the lines. But I also think like if I'm being more charitable but still disagree, I think they think that that is maybe the best way to influence the culture is to cozy up to that. And maybe they still think that it's the religious right who's still in, being the most uh, um, imposing upon society on an unwitting, uh, unwilling populace, their moral vision. And I think Nate Hockman had an amazing piece in New York Times this summer called What Comes After the Religious Right or something like that. And he's like, look, uh, who is the group today? So, yeah, maybe the moral majority in like the 80s and early 90s, that was the group mm-hmm. that was very much trying to push their vision on society and, 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 and really had the power to, to maybe do that. Well, who is the group that is doing doing that today? It's not the religious right. It's the social justice left. Mm. And so, like, if you're actually trying to speak to people who feel oppressed by this imposing moral vision, uh, even evangelistically, I think you're missing opportunities to catch what I call to minister to what this, the the refugees of the woke yeah. and sexual revolution. Talk, talk about that some, would you? Because I really like that. Yeah, I just think the idea of the the refugees. Who are they? What do you mean by that? And how we might minister to them? Yeah, so we're 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 in a, a time of profound moral insanity, right? I mean, um, yeah, Amen. Our, our 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 social mores are shifting at breakneck speed, just constantly, and people can't keep up, right? I can keep up because I'm in the academy. Like, if I wanted to play that game, I could do it because I know how everybody's talking. I know what's like bad to say. I know what what shibboleths you need to avoid, and all that, you know. Uh, but the, av- the average person, you know, uh, they can't keep up. Uh, and so and th- the whole rise of cancel culture and you get canceled for things that five minutes ago were pretty innocuous. Right. Um, and so but also like we're just in, ins- in insanity. Like we can't even talk about fundamental realities like what a woman is. So the Matt Walsh phenomenon like that movie, you know, I don't have like uh, I didn't really? I've never I've never really followed Matt Walsh closely. He's not a person that I've necessarily tried to pattern after model my my own approach after but it, i it, it was a great cultural phenomenon to realize like why so many people were moved by his film um and uh had yeah, a the, huge the desire to see that film led me to pay for getting the daily wire and in fact i had to go out and buy an apple tv the little puck so that it would all work on my tv and all, uh, yeah, all yeah. that so i could hear that one that one because movie. like why well, i just think that people are like why is we, – we, we can't even define what a woman is anymore. Like, I mean uh, – and so I so, think – So, yeah, what are the refugees from, from the – Those are the re- – the refugees are feeling confused, and they're feeling not only confused but kind of beaten up. You know, they're being called bigots for affirming basic truths, right? Like because they're not willing to say birthing person, you know, or whatever. Hmm. And, and I think they – I think they're looking for someone to speak sanity into the moment. Um, and I think the Christians should be – most well positioned to do that, and uh, and so I think there's some evangelistic opportunities that we're we're missing if we don't do that, and we just think about the lost in terms of secular leftist elites, and and not also uh, these people who are feeling beat up by the moral insanity that's being pushed on them by those secular leftist elites. Mm, yes. And so and I and I do feel like to, just to be one one comment about that is I do think the winsome third way model. Does off it's it's like seeker friendly for for uh, a, 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 a urban elites, and um, you know that's why it's uh, it worked you know well in Manhattan in many ways for a long time, and, and and urban church planters really appropriate it. But you know there's a lot of people in just middle America 
that feel like they're getting beat up even by some of these pastors who do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and I just think it's kind of like how Paul went to the synagogues, right. In his missions and like, who are the God fears also? He like, who are the God fears today? Uh, and, And in what way can we maybe, or who are the reality recognizers, at least people who still believe that reality is a thing. Uh, and so maybe mm. we we should be focusing more of our evangelistic posture towards the God fears and reality recognizers, and not just the urban elites who hate who hate Christian moral norms. Who aren't ready to listen anyway, are they? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Hey, here's a change of topic. So let me ask you this. So uh, you've talked about this recently, I think. I've heard you talk about it. So Jesus sometimes mocked the opposition. Sometimes he made caricatures of, like, you strain out a gnat and you swallow the camel. Um, so so that may be acceptable. It may even be helpful. Is it ever right for us to do that? Oh, why would we want to do that? What good can it do? Yeah, yeah, there's a big debate about this right now, right? Um, yes. and, and to be honest, like, I'm a strange person to enter into this because I actually don't do a lot of mockery. You said you follow me on Twitter. I actually don't. I think it's actually pretty hard no, you to don't, do you're this. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's pretty hard to do some of this well. And, um, and I think that takes some wisdom. Um, and, uh, and so I, I don't think that, I don't think mockery should be our default posture. I think we need to be careful, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's out of bounds. And so that would be where I don't go. Like that, that was that John Piper quote that was getting passed around. Well, like mm-hmm. Jesus did, but he's Jesus. Like, how can we mimic? We have sin. It's like, you could apply that to any other, <laughs> any other uh, uh, action of Jesus, though, and any other virtue that he uh, exemplified. Uh, well, you know, whatever. And so, um, uh, so there's there's that, and also like, why do we not think that meekness can be abused? <laughs> yeah, so Jesus Talk is meek. Li- mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, 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 an orientation to meekness can be abused uh, abused into man pleasing and cowardice, right? I mean, uh, and so I talk about that in my recent article of. Uh, Richard Baxter uh, doing and and Gregory the Great who wrote they they wrote two of the most important treatises on pastoral ministry ever written in the Christian Church and so I, when I was doing some research for this article I looked back at some of their writings and kind of how can they challenge us and they both talked about the temptation to man pleasing in ministry and like mm-hmm. how we need to be very very careful uh, and, and how that will make us uh, disinclined to say the hard things that need to be said but okay so just focusing on mockery let me read this quote from Herman Bovink who uh, I like you know, Bovink. Yeah. Have you seen pictures and, and, of him? Wow. He's a scary looking man. And uh, yeah, but you wouldn't think that he would be, you know, people in the third way winsomeness, they would love Bob Inc. But okay, what, he also spoke to this a little bit. He said mockery. Not all mockery is wrong, said Bob Inc. God himself mocks the idols. Elijah mocked the priests of Baal. Isaiah mocked the idols. And Paul did as well. And then Leland Riken, Riken wrote in a, he wrote a, a commentary on satire, or he wrote a, an excerpt on satire in one of his uh uh, writings on uh, kind of uh, different types of discourse in the Bible. He said, look, look, there's more satire in the Bible than one would guess from standard discussion. Satire, he says, is the exposure through ridicule or rebuke of human vice or folly. And like, look, if you just go read, it's not just Jesus. I mean, Jesus did, so he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. I mean, Paul told the the Judaizers in the book of Galatians, like, look, you know, they t- they, they want to cut off your skin, Right. And, uh, and uh, you shouldn't do that now. We don't need to uh, follow that. He's like, look, if they're going to be serious, why don't they cut it down to the nub, right? Yeah, cut, it cut it off. Castrate yourself. Mm-hmm. It's like, so he used mockery as well. So it's not just Jesus also. Uh, yeah. Paul, him- Paul himself was like us, right? Yes. Uh, post- post-Jesus sinner who's saved. And so he also used mockery. And so it's available as a resource to us. And, and I think it's a resource we shouldn't uh, cut off because it can be very important 
to ridicule the ridiculous, hmm. um, to expose folly, uh, to waken up. And uh, if you if, permit me to read a couple of quotes here, because I, do, sure, I didn't ahead. I didn't know we were going to talk about this, but I did have these available. I would uh, advise people to follow Ed Fezer on Twitter, F-E-S-E-R. And he has written some of the best uh, recent writings on mockery. But listen to this. He says, there are a lot of people both on the religious side and on the fence who are so impressed by the absurdly self-confident rhetoric and apparent prestige of anti-Christian thinkers that they suppose there must be something powerful in their arguments. And this supposition will remain even after one has patiently explained the defects in their positions. Sometimes, Fezzer says, breaking the spell of a rhetoric, powerful rhetorical illusion requires equal and opposite rhetorical force. Hmm. When, you, when you treat an ignorant bully arguing in bad faith as if, he, as if he were a serious thinker worthy to be engaged respectfully, you only reinforce his prestige and maintain the illusion that he might be onto something, and you thereby make it easier for people to fall into errors that the bully is peddling. And he's like, look— you can't always take a softer touch. Like sometimes a harder touch is going to be required. Even he says like a sort of verbal violence uh, because of the violence that uh, the destruction that these erroneous teachings are inviting others into. Yep. Amen. So I'm a pastor, you know that. And uh, so if, if my pulpit ministry is just full of, you know, mocking and sarcasm, whatever, that'd be, that would be unhealthy. Yeah. But if there's an occasional thing, all right. So, but I do want to mention, um, you just brought in Bob Inc. and whoever else. Um, what did I want? Oh, yeah. So like the Babylon Bee, which has been yes. kicked off of Twitter yes. for what, like a year now? But um, it's obvious that among believers and others, there is a hunger for the clarity that comes with some yeah. with some good, sturdy mockery. And I wonder, James, have you seen this, this lady? Well, I, I don't know who it is. She calls herself Lacey Jenkins, PhD, on Twitter. Have you seen her? <laughs> I think so, yeah. She's kind of mocking some of the, oh, the wokeness. Right? She's yeah. hilarious, man. But yeah. it makes the point really clearly. It shows you how ridiculous that other position really is. It kind of makes it very clear. Yeah, so satire, right, historically has been a tool of the powerless, right, to to punch up. So here's what I would huh. say. Your, your mockery should punch up, not down. And, and, and my friend Bre Brendan Case— wrote a really good essay in a uh, uh, church life journal for Notre Dame on Pascalian mockery, how Blaise Pascal provides some, some tips for how to do mockery well. But one of the things he's like, look, mockery huh. should never be a form of bullying or punching down, but a means of making ridiculous those who are abusing their authority. Oh, and, good. All right. and, uh, and so like, so, but satire has always been like this, right? I mean, it's been always been to uh, expose the ridiculousness of those in power um, and, uh, yeah, and so I think we should avail ourselves, and so I think the Babylon Bee is trying to do that. She's trying to do that, hmm. but yeah, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a punching down, but a but a punching up. Um, yeah. So yeah. let me switch gears a little bit, may I? Um, yeah, great. So here's the question I want to ask, but I'll put a little background before it. But here's where we're going. Can we really justify? Can we believers? Can we justify a posture of political activism? from the Bible? Are there biblical principles that would lead us to say, yeah, I should get active in politics? Now, here's where I'm coming from with that. So I've been part of the very neutral world thing. I've been very, very much discipled by Tim Keller in this. I've been part of Acts 29, and that whole thing has that whole aura about it. Let's avoid politics. Let's be neither left nor right. Let's avoid hot-button issues for the cause of the gospel. But, man, you just can't do that anymore. 
and uh, you know what's happened has made it really vis- made it p- possible to see that that really wasn't the right position to start with. It might have worked a little bit earlier. It sort of doesn't work now. But I've had to struggle for a bit. I think I'm over that struggle. Can we justify a posture of political activism from the Bible? Like, if we can, what would it be? I actually think it's pretty simple. But let's see what you have to say. No, I'd be interested to hear. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a verse. I mean, because the the, the uh, political arrangements in the um, uh, biblical situation is very different than a democratic polity where you you, you can you can exert uh, power through your vote and 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 also. But you could also uh, think about the prophets, right? And speaking to power. And that's a type of political activism, right? Like calling the kings, the rulers to do justice. And so like, I don't understand how that itself wouldn't be a type of political activism. Yes. Like you're forgetting the cause of the poor. You're forgetting, you're harming the weak and the powerless. Like that is wrong and you'll be held to account. And like, mm-hmm. and so they're, they're, that activism was through their prophetic voice, but also we have other tools at our disclosure, like, you know, speaking publicly on issues, voting, rallying things like those are other means mm-hmm. and and also like the way i define it is i i'm advocating for christian realism which is it is a uh 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 a stream within the tradition inspired by augustine and then people like niebuhr paul ramsey even now nigel bigger would be a major christian realist but like in that tradition like you have a limited ex- expectation of politics like you don't put all your identity in it i do not i don't think politics is going to save the world right but paul so do you want um um, like faith without works is dead. Like go to, to go tell your, like James says, to tell your neighbor, go be warm, be filled, you know, like on your own. Like Jesus said like that, that isn't, or Paul says, or James said, that's not love. That's not faith. And so I view politics as a way we love our neighbors. That's, so that's I think, what I wanted to hear. Go ahead. Talk that, about that. that. That's the way that I like, and that's where it's like, look, oh, you're just like trying to secure power and privilege. I'm like, don't be stupid. Like, stop lying. Like you're, you're <laughs> lying. You're, you're lying. And I'm viewing it as a way to practically love our neighbors and not just love them in word, but in deed. Yes. And, 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 and so if babies are being slaughtered, it's, it's immoral for me to, uh, so what's the phrase I use the, um, uh, um, oh gosh, you can't be, uh, you can't kind of love your neighbor if you, if you're being indifferent about the things that destroy them. That hurt them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so for like, example, they're, yeah, they're doing so, surgeries. Yeah, they're doing surgeries on kids, on boys, and on girls, right? Exactly. So, how can I love that person by trying to stop that, right? By doing what I can to bring that to an end. And that's why I just don't get the David French. I, I don't see how he yes. doesn't see that. Like yeah. to be honest, like because he's totally silent on this stuff. Yes. Like on the trans, on the trans on kids stuff. Like that is evil. Like what? Like kids can't. We 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 say that kids don't have choices they're not they're not uh, they don't have the the, the rationale that, the, to be able to make significant choices <laughs> before a certain age right before a certain age of development sure. you know they can't buy cigarettes yeah. they, they can't vote they can't, they can't go anything. to war <laughs> they can't drive a, car, can't drive a car but they can cu- but they can cut off their genitals without like yeah like what are we doing here and i think that's profound parental malpractice and i think to hmm. not seek to stop it is a is a failure of christian love is not loving my neighbor first commandment yeah. love god second commandment love your neighbor as yourself well if somebody's about to cut my parts off i'm not very happy cutting their parts <laughs> i shouldn't be very happy either so yeah yeah i think so so um so here's the thing so uh we're gonna have another election in a couple of years here and there won't be a perfect candidate will there there is no oh, perfect candidate. Well, I, I haven't seen some, Jesus on any ballots yet. <laughs> some, so. are, some are more perfect or less perfect than others, but um, <laughs> suppose there's, there's no easy choice because there's no perfect candidate, and there's somebody who aligns with our positions on 
well, things we're talking about here today. Um, but then there are things in their life. That sounds like I'm describing Trump, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't mean to. I'm just saying any politician the right puts up there, there's going to be somebody's yeah. going to dig for dirt. They're going to find some kind of dirt. What's a Christian do when there's no perfect candidate? What's your suggestion? Uh, well, they'll have to do what they've always done is vote for imperfect candidates. <laughs> so you, you've never done anything else. Um, so there, there's that. And, and yeah, the never Trumpers are going to be never DeSantis, but I, I think a large chunk. So it, it shows, I do think it's going to show it never was just about Trump. Mm. Uh, by the way, that, that's another prediction I have. Interesting. Uh, uh, David French clearly hates DeSantis, uh, and he's been pretty vocal about his, his strong d- dislike towards DeSantis. And so I think that mm. there's something that that indicates to me, which is worth exploring. Anyway, that's the side note. But um, so, yeah, a couple things here. Um, uh, the for, I want to make sure I get to these because they're a little distinct, but they're they're related to your it. question. One is I think we have an we need to think about our vote very differently. Like our vote, we I think evangelicals put way too much pressure on their vote uh, and who they vote for, as if the person they vote for they're making an entire endorsement of this person's life. Hmm. Like you are not, you're not. Like your vote is not that. This this person isn't a reflection of you. And I think you need to stop thinking about it that way. And a lot of evangelicals do that. And I think a lot of it is because like you're putting your name on something or you know whatever. But it's like no, this is a very practical decision. Uh, don't be totally consequentialist, but you are thinking about practical consequences. And uh, and so you, you you can't. This person doesn't ref- represent you and all your values. Okay, so that's one thing. And I think we have a hard time thinking about that. Uh, uh, so there's that. The other thing is when people say like, you know. A vote for Trump uh, was a, a, an immoral choice, and it was a, a vote against character, and a vote for Biden was a vote for character. Hmm. Uh, uh, a person's policies are also reflective of their character, by mm-hmm. the way. So um, if your policies are baby murder, that's bad character, and hmm. I don't care if you don't have mean tweets. Um, and, uh, and so I think we have a real naivety about the character question. Um, and, uh, and a lot of evil people could mask bad character through public decorum. Hmm. And I think we need to be much more uh, aware of that. Uh, and I think, so that, that those would be a couple of things. So you're gonna have to, okay, so those, those are two. The third thing is you are basically making, not always, but I think you basically often making a choice between the lesser of two evils and just be, just yes. acknowledge that. That's okay. Like um, you're trying to do, you're trying to nudge society as much as you can just in, nudge it in the direction of justice and good order doesn't mean you're fully going to get it and um and 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 so but i think so this would be a critique of some trumpists who like didn't want to at least acknowledge it was a lesser of two evils they wanted to valorize and say oh no he is actually amazing like okay in some ways sure that's fine but i think we actually could could just if we just said like yeah we we made a calculated choice and that's actually how i know most people did vote for trump Mm -hmm. they're like look it was about the judges i get it i don't like that that and that and that about him but yeah, if we can get some so, judges, and we did, he kept his word. That was, and I didn't think he would, and I was wrong on that. Nobody so, thought he would. So I was wrong on that, and the people who, they they were right, and so, um, but I think if you can at least say, I'm making the choice of a lesser of two evils, and I'm I'm going to be I'm going to recognize that. I think that could go a long way, a little bit. Yeah. So. All right, James. Let's let's bring this to around to pastors. I'll mention for is this the second or third time I'm mentioning this in this podcast. I'm a pastor, and you've been a pastor. And when we know pastors, we live and move and have our being in God and in the in His church. So, um, man, you you did this talk. What's the name of it? I'd like everybody to look it up and listen to it. The one on pastors, wolves. Yeah, yeah. That, that it'll get that? released on the Canon app, I guess. Uh, I did it out. Uh, 
uh, uh, up in Washington, my friend Chris Wiley, he's another PCA pastor, and he got the Canon guys to video record it because they've mm-hmm. got some nice tech. And so I think it'll be up next week. Um, but uh, what's the name of uh, it? The, the title is uh, "Sheep's Wolves, Sheep Wolves and Fools," and the, on the perils of a winsome ministry. Man. And it's focused on where winsomeness can go wrong in, in the realm of ministry. And it, and I use those three terms because I think it helps. And they're ve- three str- <laughs> strongly biblical terms. And there's a lot of biblical wisdom about those terms that I think gets missed in the winsome approach to ministry. You want to talk about any of that? Like what gets missed? What happens here? What goes wrong? Yeah, so I've already talked a little bit about the sheep. Um, I'll encourage your, your listeners to go look up John 10 because that did inspire a lot of my talk. Mm-hmm. where Jesus is talking about the good shepherd. And so uh, I'll mention maybe something about uh, all three of them. Um, on, on the sheep thing, like a pastor's job is to seek out lost sheep, right? So I've talked about some of the lost sheep, the refugees that I mentioned. Those are some lost sheep that get missed by the winsome types. Uh, but then you also have to protect protect the disciples, the sheep in the fold already. And, um, and I think um, by being too nice to the wolves, let me get to the wolves in a second, by being too nice to false teachers, wolves are false teachers in scripture. That's, wolves are one of the easiest things, the imagery of wolves in scripture is one of the easiest things to identify. They're false teachers in Old Testament and New Testament. So wolves are false teachers that want to have an influence uh, in, in the flock. And, uh, and so what Jesus says in John 10 is fascinating. He says, like, look, the good shepherd, uh, the shepherd's supposed to protect the, sh- the sheep. Uh, wolf wants to come and devour. And, 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 if a, and if a shepherd lets the wolf in, the, he says the, the shepherd is then a hired hand. Hmm. Uh, he's a coward. He's not doing his job. He's a hired hand. And I think like, look, so wolves are false teachers. And I think a lot of the winsome types by having too much nuance towards the destructive teachings of the left on race and gender, especially, uh, and then on some of the politics issues, uh, they've let wolves in the house. And, and I think over the last couple of years, a lot of us have felt that. And so wow. I think I think pastors need to do a better job of just saying no to some of these things. Hmm. Saying no, you're not going to bring that into our church. We're not having that. And, but if they do say no, if you do say no, you're going to get called unloving, unwinsome. You're 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 a fundamentalist. And I'm like, look, you need to brace for that <laughs> stuff. You need to take the hits from the wolves. If you aren't willing to take those hits from the wolves, you're just a hired hand and you're a coward. And like and uh, and not every hired hand is a wolf is directly a wolf. But if they let the wolves in, they're a hired hand. They're a hired so. Hand. So that's that's the wolf stuff, and and man, scripture just like go just go read. Uh, I could send a link to some comments about what scripture says about wolves. It's very harsh. Oh, yeah. um, I like yeah. Acts twenty with Paul to the Ephesian elders on the wolves too. Savage wolves will rise up from within and come in from without. Yeah, good stuff. Hey, yeah, go I've read Second gotta... Peter two. It's it, it's a red pill. I mean, it's like. The word that Peter, the words that Peter has for wolves are extremely harsh. So I'll leave it there. Yeah, they're not real nuanced, are they? They're not. Uh, no. uh, so um, I've got to draw this to a close. I hate to say it because I'd enjoy talking to you for hours here, but uh, maybe yeah, we'll have another one some other time and go longer. But here, here's my final question for you today, James. It is this: What would you say to somebody? Maybe they're listening to this, or maybe there's some other influence in their life, and they've just realized, "Hey, I, I've been a, a third way." Christian, um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I, maybe I can't nuance everything so much. Maybe we can't just offer the world their part of the neutral ground, and I'll take my part of the neutral ground, and we'll all be happy. Maybe I need to be more, uh, more Petrine, more Pauline in my saying that's evil, that's wrong. Say it publicly, and so on. What would you say to somebody who just realized they're a third wayer, and now they're thinking, hmm, maybe that was wrong. Uh, well, I would say uh, 
uh, I understand that's what I was. Um, and I don't think it was everything about it was always wrong, um, as I've mentioned. So you don't need to have some massive repentance or something. Um, though, you know, if you feel like you platformed destructive voices, right, in your church, especially like, uh, and people are still being influenced by them, you might need to make some public statements of like, hey, I, I apologize, like I shouldn't have done that. And hmm. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that where this would go. So I, there, there might be places where people need to, like with J.D. Greer, for instance, when he did the pronoun hospitality stuff, that's a classic like naivety of winsomeness. Yes. And he, but he did correct. He walked it back. So, mm. and, and I'm not going to cynically read into his motives. People have done that. I'm just going to take it at face value. Like, and I'm going to say like, look, I want to fan more stuff like that into flame. So that's great. Thank you, J.D. You needed to do that because that was influencing people. And other people, let's follow the lead, right? Like where you made a mistake uh, in a public way and it it led people down the wrong path. Admit it. Say you're wrong and move. And guess what? Like the Christian faith is profoundly hospitable to to mm. sinners who repent. Oh, that's sweet. right. And so like it's sweet. okay. Like, and people actually are inspired by that. And they actually are warm up to you. Like they warm up to you as a leader, even when you admit you were wrong. I mean, people love that. They eat it up. Don't do it in a fake way. Don't apologize for things that you don't need to apologize for or that you don't actually believe you were wrong about. Don't do that because that's how the Amen. world mob wants to get you. And that's how they beat up your, they, they suck your soul mm -hmm. and don't do that. But if you did something wrong and you can honestly admit that that's great, do it. Uh, and otherwise like, you know, there's some really great uh, the, follow the American reformer. They're really platforming some, some great conversations to help us think clearly about how to forge ahead. Don't get, you know, I throw a red pill around kind of in a funny way. It's how people talk. Don't get um, nasty and like just mean towards people who don't see it yet. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, to hold, still walk in the path of Jesus. So for instance, like I thought David French's articles, he wrote two of them, like maybe three against me, but like, you know, I never tried to come back at him. Uh, I, I tried to give him the benefit of doubt, like how he might be reading me and kind of understand it. And, and I, we still have to walk in the way of Jesus. If, like we need to be silent before our accuser sometimes and like, you know, allow and allow that to, to hit and still walk in integrity. So like, you're still going to have to walk in the other ways of Jesus but like you don't have to do it in the naive way that's being being pushed on us, I think, by the, the winsome approach. So don't 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 uh, correct by then just becoming a jerk. That's I don't want people to do that. Don't become a jerk. There's a good bottom line for all this. Hey, so I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to tell our listeners that uh, you ought to go check out James's talk. You can probably find it in print. I think I did. Uh, at the National Conservatism Conference, was that the name of it, in Miami, September of 2022. You, can, you should also go read The Limits of Winsome Politics and then read Sheep, Wolves, and Fools or find them and listen to them. They're all really great, and uh, they got me to a place very quickly that I thought, man, I'd like to talk to James. So thank <laughs> you for joining us. Glad I got to talk with you. Uh, that's thank it you. for today, folks, for Grounded. If you're in the area, the Baltimore area, come visit us at Cornerstone Community Church in Joppa, Maryland. And um, thanks for watching. <laughs>